Hey, so if I haven't met you yet, my name is Seth. I'm one of the elders here. And I was going to say that Nick and Jen are off enjoying a couple of weeks of parental leave, but they're here with us this morning. So congratulations to them. Um, they're going to continue their leave for another week or two, and then they'll rejoin us here. But uh, i got to say it's well-deserved, and congrats again. Um, so if you were with us last week, you know that we're going through Jonah. And Saju is here um, talking about Jonah's interaction with the sailors and everything he encountered and connecting that to the uh, atonement of Christ. And today we're going to pick that up and look at Jonah's prayer. Um, exact same spot in the story. Jonah hits the water. He gets swallowed by a fish. He starts praying. And that's what we're going to talk about. And as I was kind of reflecting on prayer and Jonah's prayer and trying to prepare for this, um, I started thinking about my own experience with prayer and, and kind of how I got into some weird places with that. And then we talked about it in our community group, and we figured out that a lot of people in our community group kind of came to some weird conclusions on prayer on their own because nobody really talked to them about it. And so for me, kind of where I came from, I grew up in a, a Christian home. I grew up in a household that valued prayer. I had it modeled to me. I understood that it was important. But I kind of developed this functional belief that I pray because I'm supposed to. I don't really know what it does. I don't really expect it to work. And so it's just this thing that we do because we're supposed to, but it's not really effective. And another thing you should know about my story for years and years and years, and even occasionally today, I struggled with doubting my salvation. And it could be crippling at times. Um, and so if that's you, parentheses, would love to talk to you. But I, I hit this point where 13, 14, just starting high school, and I, I'm just... I can't take it anymore. I'm low. I can't handle it. And I just cried out to God. I said, God, would you send me somebody, just send somebody to tell me if I'm saved or not? Like, I can't handle this anymore. And so I go to school. A couple days later, this kid walks up to me, and he's got this little Live Strong type bracelet on a card. And he's like, hey, man, I got this, and I thought of you. Here you go. And I look down at the bracelet, and it says saved across the bracelet. And then I look at the card. And the only thing I remember is the first line of the card, and it said something like, you are saved. So, like, literal fulfillment of the prayer, right? But me, being a genius 13-year-old, because I was expecting a very particular outcome, I was expecting my emotions to shift, I was expecting somebody to say, God told me, you are, and it was going to feel amazing. Because it didn't look the way I expected, I said, well, that was just a coincidence, my prayer didn't work. God, would you send somebody to tell me if I'm saved or not? And so I'm stuck in this loop, completely disregarding God answers to prayer. And so what I kind of learned is that um, I was praying with hope in a very particular predefined outcome. And I was praying in isolation. And so what I want to challenge us to do today is pray with expectation. Not necessarily in a specific outcome, although that's okay. I mean, we pray with faith for God to do things, but we're not trying to generate psychological certainty that a particular thing is going to happen. We pray in expectation that God is good and that he will act. And then I would also encourage us to pray in community so that when you're like me and you can't see the forest for the trees, you've got a community to correct you. And so the best way I can illustrate that is a box. Prayer is a box. And so when we pray, we take all of our concerns our cares, our needs, everything that we're asking the Lord for, and we put it in a box. And then the act of praying, and the act of praying with expectation is, 
you take your box to the Lord, you give him the box, and now you say, God, I know that you're good, I know that you love me, I know that you have my box, and you're going to do something with it. I don't know what that might be, but I know that you're good, and you're not going to blow me off, and whatever you choose to do is going to be good. And then we pray in community so that in a couple of days when I'm filled with doubt and I can't see the forest for the trees, my community can go, hey man, I know you can't see it, but your box is right there. God's still got it. He's going to do something with it. And they can encourage me and build my faith. So put your needs in a box. Give your box to the Lord. And trust Him with the box. That's kind of a tangent. It's for free, but I was, I was just thinking about it. And I wish somebody would have told me that years and years ago. Um, and so we'll, we'll kind of build off of that and examine Jonah's prayer today. And uh, what I'm going to try to do is use the book of Jonah and hold it up as a mirror for all of us. Because Jonah's structured very uh, purposefully, intentionally, and it's meant to cause both self-reflection and it's also meant to make us ask questions of the text. Like, why does this appear? Why doesn't this appear? Why is this happening? Why is this repeated? And so what we're going to try to do is I'm going to try to show you that just like Jonah, we're not as great as we think we are. We're pretty complex. And yet God still gives us grace. And then we're going to take that and we're going to move forward and look at the call of Jesus for us as individuals and as the church. And so we're going to look at three points. First, we're going to take Jonah's prayer and we're just going to pick it apart. We're going to observe what's there and what's not and just kind of lay out all the evidence. And then second, we're going to use that evidence and our observations to try to discern what is Jonah's heart in all of this and how can we see our own heart through that. And then finally, we're going to look at the call of Jesus and compare it um, to what Jonah was going through and try to apply that to our lives. So if you're with me, we'll be in uh, Jonah 1.17 through 2.10. We'll take a look at the text, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. So let's go. Uh, 1.17 And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to see you this morning? Would you call us into deep friendship and relationship with you? Would you show us the complexities of our own heart and show us the grace that you have given us and point us back to your Son? Lord, let all glory come to you and help us to fulfill your mission as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at Jonah's prayer. Let's start off with what we do see. 
Uh, it's beautiful at first read, and it kind of sounds like a poem or a psalm, which kind of struck me. And I think it's notable that Jonah is praying from the belly of the fish in the middle of his difficulty. And if you think back when he's on the ship and they're in the storm, he doesn't pray. He tries to solve the problem on his own. Uh, when the sailors are about to throw him overboard, he doesn't pray. He might have prayed when he hits the water, depending on kind of how you read this, this passage. But he kind of waits until he gets put in the penalty box and he's at like the lowest point of his life. And then he prays. And it's a prayer of thanksgiving for God's salvation while he's still in the belly of a fish. So you can see that he's, he's praying with faith. He's praying with expectation. And he's riffing heavily off the scriptures and specifically the Psalms. Um, it's notable to me that when Jonah finally hits rock bottom and he's getting squeezed, Scripture is what starts coming out of him. All the things that he's been taking in through the course of his life. And just in this little short prayer, he alludes to Psalm 3, 120, 118, 88, 42, 69, 31, 50, some of Lamentations, and there's echoes of Psalm 139 around the whole thing as well. Like There's just Scripture coming out of this guy. And he's praying with faith. I mean, he's... he's thanking God for salvation that hasn't even come yet. And if we look at the structure of the prayer, it's, it's really intentional and it's kind of beautiful. A parallel, chiastic structure. So basically, the beginning and the end of the prayer is a mirror. And as we work our way towards the center, those elements mirror. And we come to this central point of emphasis in verse 4, um, which is kind of the crux of the whole prayer. And so if you look at the beginning and the end, it's talking about Jonah calling to the Lord and the Lord answering him. And then as we come closer to the middle, Jonah's in the waters and they're over his head and he's suffering. In the beginning, God's casting him down and in the end, God's lifting him up. But then we come to the center point of emphasis in verse 4. And um, the CSV, or CSB excuse me, renders it a little bit differently than what I just read. And it says, I have been banished from your sight yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. And I don't know if that language sounds familiar to you, but again, he's referencing Scripture. And he's going back to Kings when Solomon dedicates the temple. And Solomon's praying this, this beautiful prayer of dedication, and he's blessing the people, and he, he basically says, Lord, when the people face famine or drought, when they face persecution or when they sin or when they're taken from their land and put into captivity, if they will stop and turn and pray towards your temple, will you hear from heaven and will you intervene? And so Jonah is kind of, he's calling on that. He's saying, I've been driven from your sight. You've cast me into the waters. You have brought me to this lowest point in my life. And yet I will turn and I will pray towards your temple. And then he, he speaks about his confidence in God's salvation. Um, I think it's clear that Jonah recognized both the sovereignty of God over his circumstances and the power that God had to save him from those circumstances. And we see Jonah, is, he looks pretty repentant in this prayer. I mean, he, the center of his parallel structured prayer is turning and praying to the temple. And then at you know, verse 8 and 9, he talks about that a little bit more. And God seems to approve because he, he gets out of the fish. Um, but if we look a little bit more closely at verses 8 and 9, we also see how complex Jonah's heart is. And just listen to this. And keep in mind the pagan sailors that we just met 
and the Ninevites that Jonah's called to go preach to. Verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we're getting a lot of echoes here, a lot of complexity here, lots of layers. The first layer, Jonah's making a beautiful and true statement about who God is and his power to save. And Jonah's saying, there's no God but Yahweh. If I follow any other God, they have no power. They can't save me from this circumstance. Only you, Lord, can pull me out of this. And that's true and that's right. But if we go a little deeper, we hear this just slightest echo of Jonah's self-righteousness or his apparent superiority because we've got the sailors in mind, the pagan sailors. We've got the pagan Ninevites in mind. And Jonah's saying here, but I, I'm different. It makes you wonder, why, why is he even talking about that in the first place? And then if we go a little bit deeper, Jonah is totally unable to see that same sin in his own heart. He can't see that he's hanging on to idols of security and comfort as he's running from the Lord. All the sin that brought him to his circumstance in the first place, and yet he's talking about his distinction and difference from the sailors and the Ninevites. So Jonah's a complex guy. Now, what don't we see in his prayer? There's a couple of things that jump out to me. Um, we don't see any confession of sin anywhere in this prayer. We don't see any admission of guilt anywhere. And just to highlight that, let's take a look at what David prayed um, after he got caught up with Bathsheba and confronted about that in Psalm 51. Just listen to this and see how it's different from Jonah. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Sound a little bit different? David is totally clear on what he's done and who he's done it against. Um, but we don't see the word sin, unless I missed it, pop up once in Jonah's prayer. And I think the story is designed to make us ask, how can Jonah be so confident in his salvation when he can't even confess his own sin? And the point is, he doesn't deserve it at all. It's grace. Um, Jonah is imperfect. His, his turning back to the Lord is imperfect, and yet he still receives grace. And to kind of bring that home, he composes this beautifully complex, beautifully structured, poetic prayer, thanking God for salvation that hasn't come yet, all while he's inside the belly of a fish, and he still can't see where his heart is out of alignment with the Lord. He recognizes God's grace in his own life. He claims it. He turns towards it. And yet he's still angry about God's grace to his enemies, as we'll see later in the book. And, you know, I think he, he really probably comes to a point of repentance in the fish. Um, but once he gets out, that heart posture kind of changes. And he obeys God with his hands, but not with his heart. And I think 
the story is designed to make us ask, how often is that me? Um, so now that we've kind of seen everything that's in Jonah's prayer, let's try to use that to discern just where his heart is in all of this. I mean, Jonah deserved to die, right? He ran from the Lord. He was willing to forsake his faith, his homeland, everything he'd ever known to get away from the command of God. And he deserved death for that. But instead, he received grace. And he knew that he deserved death because that's why he told the sailors to throw him overboard. Um, he receives this grace, but he's unwilling to extend it to the Ninevites. And yeah, he'll go because God told him to go and he doesn't want to get swallowed by something else, but he's not happy about it and he doesn't want them to be saved. So he's outwardly obedient, but his heart's still not there. And uh, he, he holds himself to a different standard than the Ninevites. I mean, God's totally unmerited grace is poured out on Jonah and he receives it thankfully, all while hoping that that same grace won't be given to others. Um, and despite all of this imperfection, despite all of this complexity, God responds to Jonah's plea. Even though he doesn't confess his sin, even though he doesn't admit his guilt, God gives him grace and releases him from the fish. And I think that's, that's kind of worth honing in on for a second because that's us all the time. Like We're complex, we're imperfect, we never get it all the way right, and yet God gives us that grace. Um, and as, as I was thinking about this this morning, you know, kind of the theme of this series is grace triumphs over judgment. And I always kind of frame that around the Ninevites, like the Ninevites received grace, the Ninevites weren't judged. But I think really the focus is it's for Jonah. Like God's grace triumphs over judgment for Jonah. Um, and it triumphs over judge, judgment for us when we follow Christ. And so... That, that gives me hope, right? My complex heart, my imperfection, all of the things that I mess up, if God can do this for Jonah, then he does it for me too. And so then, how am I called to respond to that? And we'll get there in a minute. But Jonah, he receives this grace, and yet he demands more from the Ninevites than he demands from himself. He was totally cool with this kind of imperfect repentance, heart posture not really there. But then when he gets to Nineveh, he's, he's not okay with the Ninevites doing the same thing. And to be honest, I'm not totally sure that I would feel different. I mean, if I showed up to a city as evil as Nineveh, doing all the things that they had done, and I preach five words, and all of a sudden they like throw some ash on, change their clothes, and God says they're good, I'd be, I would struggle with that a little bit, right? And Jonah definitely struggles with it too. Um, and I think it's just worth highlighting that, you know, Jonah is probably judging himself based on his intention, and he's judging the Ninevites based on their outward action, and he's unable to see how his action and theirs is exactly the same. Like, Jonah is Nineveh. The only difference is he just met Yahweh a little bit sooner than they did. Um, and his heart is... They should get what they deserve. They deserve destruction. I want to see it. And when he, when he sees God give them grace, just like he's received grace, he's so angry that he tells God he wants to die. He would rather die than see his enemies receive grace. And the text prompts us to ask another question. Like, well, 
what do you deserve, Jonah? Like you think the Ninevites deserve destruction, what do you deserve? And it, it kind of leaves that question hanging for us to ask about Jonah and for ourselves. What do we deserve? And so I think we've established pretty clearly that Jonah's a complex cat and he doesn't have it all together. And so what, do you, what does Jesus have to say for somebody like Jonah? And if we fast forward to the New Testament, um, Jesus reserves his harshest, harshest rebukes for the religiously superior, right? For the Pharisee, for the scribe, for the teacher of the law. He comes down pretty hard on those guys. And the Pharisees were like Jonah in a lot of ways. They're blind to their own sin. They're quick to condemn others. Uh, unwilling to extend grace or associate with sinners. And outwardly obedient to the requirements of the law while their heart was far from the Lord. I mean, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, right? Like beautiful on the outside, full of death and decay on the inside. And uh, Jesus goes after them pretty hard. If we look at Matthew 12... 38 through 41, listen to what he says to him. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And his rebuke is basically, you are unable to recognize the work of God that's right in front of your face. Like, here I am, and you are so concerned with keeping your religious checklist, and so unconcerned with your heart, that you can't even see that I'm here to save you. And so those that are superior uh, are actually going to be condemned by those whom they look down upon, the Ninevites. Um, I, I think that should give us pause. Like, it's, it's difficult to articulate, but the whole, the whole book of Jonah is upside down, right? Like, the guy that's supposed to be righteous, he's the unrighteous character. And the, the pagans that are supposed to be all messed up are more righteous than him. And it just, it has this, like, echo and this foreshadowing of the ethic of Christ. Because when Christ comes, who does he go to? He goes to the sinner, to the outcast, those who are sick, those who need a physician. That's what he's calling Jonah to do, and Jonah's unwilling to go. And it's a foreshadowing of what he's calling us to do as individuals and as the church as well. Um, so does any, any of this sound familiar? Because I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's hitting home for me, right? Subconsciously, I think I've got it all together. Like, I don't drive crazy on 495. I'm not on my phone, you know. Uh, I believe in Jesus, I'm trying to live right, I serve, I tithe, whatever. And like, we don't place our hope in those things, but let's, I mean, let's be honest. If we are really being honest with one another, subconsciously, we feel like we're building up some cred or some spiritual points that kind of put us on a different standing. And um, the best way I can explain it is 495, because I'm there twice a day, every day. And when the guy goes flying past me down the shoulder and I get all angry and feel superior to him because I'm trying to drive nice and be uh, considerate, I'm unable to see that I'm also going five over the speed limit and I might have just, might have just turned on a podcast. Um, like, I can't see my own sin, but I see his sin. And because I think I'm 
doing better than he is, I judge him more harshly. Like we judge others more harshly in the areas where we feel like we've got it all together. Um, but in reality, I'm just as guilty. And I'm standing up here preaching this message, and every day I struggle to identify my own sin and to root it out. But I'm pretty good at identifying sin in other people. Um, and so all of those outward actions, the trying to live right, the trying to be friendly, the believing in Jesus, going to church, tithing and praying, those are all right and good and things that we should do. That's what the Lord calls us to do. But if we step through the motions of a religious checklist and we're not paying attention to the status of our heart, we're missing the whole point. Um, the Lord wants our heart. He doesn't just want our hands. And so to, to kind of bring this home, we've seen where Jonah's coming from. We've seen how complex he is. We can see ourselves in Jonah and identify with the, uh, both the failures and the successes that he's shown us. What does Jesus call us to do, and how should we respond? And like I said, he is calling us to give our hearts and not just our hands. And uh, just to underscore that point, what does he say the greatest commandment is? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The common thread there in both commandments is heart posture. He's not telling them the greatest commandment is to go and make sure that you don't eat meat and cheese at the same time or like keep the rules. It's the status of your heart. And then let's take a look at Hosea 6.6 6, because he, he kind of comes down on this verse hard a couple of times with the Pharisees. And it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And you might remember it as, I require mercy and not sacrifice in the New Testament. And what Jesus is saying here is, I, again, I care more about your heart being aligned to me, that you are worshiping me and following me, than I care about your sacrifices and burnt offerings. And he uses that very verse twice to rebuke the Pharisees in Matthew. Uh, chapter 9, he rebukes them when they challenge him for hanging out with sinners which was the whole call of Jonah in the first place. And in chapter 12, he rebukes them when they challenge him and his disciples for not observing the Sabbath in the way they thought he should. And both times, he's going hard after their outward religious superiority while their heart is dead. And so, it brings us to the question, how should we respond? Like, what is the Lord calling us to? And I think Romans uh, chapter 3 makes it pretty clear. So we'll turn there. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And this is what it says. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all, who to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and continuing down, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too, 
since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Three things to key in on there. There is no distinction. God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. And God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. And to put that in our current context, I mean, we're, I think we're all Gentiles here, right? So it, it can be a little hard to connect with. But the point that he's driving home is, hey, God's salvation is not just for this group of religious people who have grown up with him, who know the scriptures. His salvation is for everybody. It's for people like you and for people different than you. And it's a call for us to respond with humility and grace to the people around us who are different. There's no distinction. God is the God of those who are like us and those who are not like us. Um, and to drill down on that a bit, I think we're okay with the thought of people who are different than us receiving grace and getting their lives cleaned up and living right and being conformed into the image and likeness of us a little bit, right? And, and we're cool with that because then they're going to get right and they're going to finally start you know, following what they need to. But what happens when Jesus calls us to go and be the means of grace to that person while they're still in their sin and while they're still different from us? Well, then it, it gets a lot more real. It's like, you, you mean you want me to go talk to them? Like, love them? Maybe invite them over for dinner? But they're different. They're messy. I don't want to do that. And the newsflash is, like, we're already called to that. There's people in our lives who are different than us, who don't agree with us, who we struggle to identify with or struggle to relate to, and um, we're called to share the gospel with them. To put it another way, we're called to cheerfully carry God's grace to the Ninevites in our lives. Cheerfully, like from the heart. Um, those who are different with us, those with whom we disagree, political left, political right, political center, the difficult, people who sin, um, people who don't want anything to do with the church. We're called to love them. And so, um, we bring the band up. We went a little fast through my notes, but band, you guys can come on up. I just, I want to go to a final thought here and kind of try to bring this down to a point. I think Jonah's story, Jonah's upside-down, messed-up story is causing us to challenge our assumptions. It's causing us to challenge what we think we're called to. And it's pointing us towards a deeper heart-level friendship with God. Because that's kind of what Jonah was lacking. And I think the book is designed to remind us that despite our complexity, despite our sin, and all the ways that we're messed up, God offers us grace. Um, and the standard's pretty low. It's, it's faith, right? Faith in Jesus. And if he offers us that grace, he offers the same grace to everybody around us, just like he did to the sailors, the Ninevites, um, the Ninevites in our lives. And it's a call for us to cheerfully embody that mission from the heart, to own it, to go out and live it every day. And um, I just want to say this one piece before we close. There is a vibrance and a life that is available to you that goes far beyond just a list of rules or cultural Christianity. And that can be hard to imagine. And um, it's not a word of condemnation. Like, this isn't a message for us to go and try harder and clean ourselves up and love people. And if we work really hard, then finally we'll be a good Christian. 
the point is to lay all of that aside and to just look to Jesus. Like, walk in friendship with Jesus. He's calling us into relationship. That's what he died to give us. And he literally died, put his spirit in our hearts so that we can have a daily communion with him. And he, he's offering so much more than we can ask, think, or imagine. Um, and he's calling us into that. And so it's a word of encouragement. That is available to you. If you're in this room, that is available and for you. It's not for somebody else. It's not for the people who look good or who've got it all together. It's for you. And if you do feel condemned by that, or if you feel like, um, I just can't get there. Like, that's where I want to be. I don't know how to punch through. I don't know what to do. No matter what I try, I just can't get there. Come for prayer. That's what we're here for. We'll have a team on both sides of the stage. Come and tell them about it. Let's talk. Let's pray. And let's press in. Um, because this isn't an empty promise. This is something that's for all of us. And so uh, we're going to respond with communion. If you need elements, they're out in the hallway there. Um, feel free to go grab them. And communion, it's a family meal for all the followers of Jesus. So if you've given your life to Christ, if you're in good standing with your church, this is a meal that's for you. And so we're going to sing a couple of songs, and we'll take communion as you feel led, but I would just invite you to reflect on the gift of friendship with God that's available, the grace that he's shown you, and the grace that he's calling you to carry to others. And just reflect on who might that be in your life, what's God calling you to do, and how should you respond.